In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. False teachers are a serious threat to the Christian faith. They twist the scriptures, deny the Lord Jesus, and lead many astray. In this chapter, Peter exposes their evil motives and their wicked practices. He shows how God protects his people from their deception and delivers them from the destruction of false teaching. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, September 14th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, as my guest to help us learn about false prophets and see what the Holy Spirit and St. Peter have to tell us is the Reverend Dr. Michael Morehouse. He's the pastor of Catalina Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. Good morning, Pastor, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo. Thanks for having me back on. Oh, absolutely. Always great to have you on as a guest and uh, certainly delighted to be going through this text with you today. We've been making our way through First and Second Peter. Uh, both are pretty short letters so far as epistles are concerned. Second Peter even more so. It's only three chapters right here in the middle. I would argue that our text today is I don't know, maybe the maybe the kind of the climax of it. I mean, he's speaking a lot about a lot of things, but it seems like maybe the whole purpose of the letter is to really emphasize this false teaching. But but maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? No, I agree. It's not I wouldn't say to emphasize the false teaching, but emphasize the problems of the false teachers. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> and the false teaching and the impact that it has, uh, especially on uh, new Christians or perhaps Christians that aren't as well steeped in the scriptures, we would call it catechized. Right. And so I agree with you. This yeah. this is basically a law chapter. I did find one gospel handle, which we will get to, I'm sure. Well, good. We always like to give the folks gospel if we can. You know, but eight, sometimes the, I mean, the law of God is good. That's the good news. Even if it always convicts, it is still good. Um, well, right. we'll look through that today. I think before we get into any of it, though, it's a good idea to start our time together in prayer. Brother, would you lead us in prayer? Yes, sir. Thank you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you sent your holy word into this fallen creation, that through your Holy Spirit you've preserved it and carried it from generation to generation. With the good news of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins and with the warning for those of us who are following Christ to not follow other gospels, no matter how worldly pleasing they may seem or how enticing they may be. Grant us a full measure of the Holy Spirit today as we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word for this day. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, 2 Peter is a letter written by Peter to encourage the Christians. It's the second letter, as the name implies. Uh, in chapter 1, he really emphasized how Christians should be growing in their knowledge of God and his promises and live in a way that reflects his character and grace. Um, we're going to move into false teachers today, but before we do, is there anything in the first chapter that the folks should know about that perhaps Peter is building upon, or just just anything to help us with context before we read any of our texts? So this really builds upon uh, chapter one and that which the foundation which the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had laid down, and now chapter two can be divided in 
different ways, but I like to take it in, in sections of about four sections here. Uh, verses 1 through 3, apostolic attacks against false teachers. Verses 4 through 10a, which is the first um, half of verse 10. That would be uh, three ancient examples of God's judgment, um, 10b through 16, actually enumerating the sins of the false teachers, false prophets, and then 17 through 22, the effects of uh, the fallen teaching on those who are named with the name of God in Christ Jesus. Well, let's start with verses 1 through 3 then. Here we go. This is going to be chapter 2 of Second Peter from the English Standard Version. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. All right, so just pausing right there at the end of three. But false prophets also arose. So maybe we should make sure uh, the folks know, but means that he's sort of in the middle of a thought. Uh, What's that thought that he's in the middle of? also arose among the people where How, who what false teachers is he comparing to the false teachers that will arise among the people well this would be the true teachers and chapter one ends with the uh, idea that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit so those would be the marks of that of the true prophet the true teacher that they were not speaking of their own opinion or their own thoughts or their own interpretation, but rather being carried along by the Holy Spirit who was directing um, that which they would record for the benefit of God's people. And in this, uh, with this but, uh, we also have a reminder that when he speaks of the people, in this case, it appears to be taking the hearers of this letter back to the um false prophets that literally became or happened among the people of the old covenant. And then he segues in the same sentence and also in all of you. So then that would be within the new covenant. Right. So in the new covenant, don't you think that there won't be also false teachers that come around and will secretly bring in destructive heresies? Yeah, go ahead. I like the, uh, the, the, one of the ways of rendering that secretly is they will smuggle them in. Oh, um, yeah, I like that. <laughs> the word that, that is used there is a one-time use in the um, Scripture, so um, we would have to go outside. But it, in terms of uh, somebody bringing something in surreptitiously, uh, and it brings in heresies is the literal word there. And when we think of heresies, we probably think of those who deny the Trinity, um, others would like to say maybe it's just those who teach some small false doctrine, but we would probably consider them heterodox, that is, other than right teachers. But in this case, heresies would probably indicate sects, S-E-C-T-S, um, among the um, people. And then it tells what kind uh, the, that bring destruction um, and that deny their Lord, which indicates that these who are bringing the false teachings have confessed Christ. 
Let's talk about that for just a second. You brought up a couple of words that I think it's important that the people know in addition to one more. Um, there, We should make a distinction even today between orthodox, heterodox, and heretical, or her- heresies, or people who are spreading heresies, heretical. Um, help the people understand what the difference is between those terms and how we might use them today, because I, I do think it's important. Well, I agree with you, and that's one of the things that uh, folks get confused about. Uh, with the ecumenical spirit that, that is of our times, that basically we should not argue over any doctrine, come down to a minimum confession of faith that simply Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's enough. Among those who teach, uh, there's a, a greater weight of teaching. Of course, that's covered in First Timothy, Second Timothy, and, Thir- and Titus. Um, but we have the concept of those who would be teaching, first of all, de- deal with what I think would be the easiest one, which is heretical teaching. Um, I tend to use the ancient church definition. That is anyone who denies the Trinity as it's revealed in Scripture. And of course, we know the word's not there, but right. the God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each having their own offices in the one Godhood. What do you think? Well, I, I agree. I agree. So, you know, we have heretical churches uh, today, for instance, and I think a heretical church maybe versus a church that is just a different religion altogether is one who claims the name of Jesus, but as you've so rightly pointed out, doesn't believe rightly about the nature of God. I, I, I would almost argue that anything that departs from anything in the creeds would make them heretical. The creeds being probably the lowest common denominator that we should come up with. You talked about how people want to just say, okay, well, Jesus is Lord, or Jesus died for your sins, or Jesus loves you, and that's enough. Well, probably enough for salvation to apprehend that, but he certainly wants us to grow in faith and knowledge of him and preach true doctrine and all that kind of stuff. I think he wants us to be concerned with those things. So I think some examples today would be, you have like the Mormons, which is a certainly a different religion so far as if you really were to kind of compare it to Christianity as a whole, but they claim to be Christian. So that sort of puts them in the category of, of heretical as opposed to, say, Muslims who just are flat out a completely different faith tradition, you know, completely different religion altogether. Um, certainly no better, but... For those who claim Christ but then profess him falsely, I think that sort of deserves a little bit more of a heavier title, and, and her, heretic is the title. That's correct. I would go with that. And then in terms of orthodox versus heterodox, orthodox would be um, right practice or right worship as opposed to hetero, which is different, or other than right practice or other than right worship. So these would then... Orthodox would be those who would hold to the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. We would maintain the the confessions as a correct uh, exhibition of that which Scripture teaches and so forth, as opposed to those who would have other than right teaching. They they do confess the creeds, yet they get points of doctrine on, in particular, fundamental doctrines. uh, What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? What is holy absolution? They get those in error, and they stand against the teaching of Scripture there, but they are not denying the Trinity. 
Yeah, and not to put too fine of a point on it, but the way I look at it is, you know, heretical teaching, buying into it, believing it, confessing it, that in my estimation, <laughs> without judging the heart, um, puts one outside of salvation, whereas a, a heterodox is one who just has teachings that are not correct, but they the essentials are there, I guess is one way to put it. An example for me would be the, the Baptist church, for instance, full of Christians, but they have some doctrines wrong, so they are heterodox. But isn't it true that every faith tradition would consider itself the orthodox one and everybody else the heterodox ones? Well, I would say up until about the last 20 years, that might be true. Now, I don't, I don't know that people even use those terms uh, as you move out in terms of those who hold uh, Scripture with critical eyes um, that would change it. I don't even know if they would even concern themselves with such teaching. So they, uh, so now it's sort of unfashionable to uh, claim that you, you yourself is of, or, uh, pardon me, it, to claim that you yourself are orthodox is is sort of a, a faux pas. You know, everybody has the right to their own truth. I guess is the modern age. Is that what you're saying? I would agree with that. That's correct. It, wow. it, it seems to many people to be more unloving to stand firm on the truth and to reject the errors that are uh, in those who are teaching falsely than to, um, in other words, just to get along and why can't we all get along kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. And of course, that probably was happening in the first century as Peter's writing here because, I mean, he he doesn't mince any words in this whole chapter. Right, right. So, so, you know, destructive heresies, so they're smuggling in destructive heresies. You mentioned earlier something about a sect, uh, S-E-C-T, uh, like a faction or, you know, a sort of a different kind of, I guess, ideology. Um, during this time, that word really probably wouldn't have meant necessarily a destructive heresy or a, a false uh, heresy. Heresies back then were typically just thought of as sort of different flavors, I guess is one way, different tribes of the same belief. I think it became known to for all heresies to be seen as destructive, I think came from the biblical teaching here. He's making the distinction that there are destructive heresies out there. Be careful of the destructive ones. Now language has changed, so we kind of use that word for you know, all of them are destructive. Back then, though, not all of them would have necessarily been destructive. I think he—I don't think he was operating with the orthodox, heterodox way that we think about things. Uh, but a lot of people will say, and I and I think there's something for us to contemplate here. Well, shouldn't you just worry about what you believe and not worry about what other people believe? But I—I I, and I know that you'll have something nice to say about this. But but <laughs> I would go ahead and jump in and just say how do we know truth or how do we even look out for false teaching if we don't uh, have established a truth, if we don't believe what we teach, if we're not con convicted and convinced in our own mind of the truth of what we preach, teach, and confess, how can we know if false teachings are coming in? I, th I think that speaks to what you were saying earlier, that this world today doesn't even care. That's correct. And Peter's coming in the assumption, again, from all of chapter one and from, from the weight of the, of the, Old and New Testament scriptures that that the truth actually exists, uh, the reality of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins for all people, and then the Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins for those who believe. So you have the objective, the wide-ranging justification declared right with God, and then the subjective, uh, Christ died for me, 
um, reality is what Paul, uh, Peter is working within in this context. And I agree with you that uh, heterodox orthodox at that point in time was not did not appear to be on his radar. It would take probably till the uh, ecumenical councils to start dealing with things that were um, more finely tuned outside of heresy to deal with those type of topics. But that doesn't mean he wasn't very concerned with the truth, of course, as you pointed out. Verse 2, he says, many will follow their sensuality. Um, it sounds to me, just by reading that, that the, the heretics were coming in and kind of enticing people away by using I don't know, licentiousness, uh, sexual types of debaucheries. Is, is, is that part of what's luring these people away? That's what it appears in the, in the article. It keeps coming back to this in terms of verse two here. This, this sensualist sensual sensuality would be more concerned, uh, more better understood. I think, boy, that wasn't even a good English sentence. Unbridled living, <laughs> unbridled living. Right. Um, so basically, they're taking the world in which they lived, and Christians were called out of that world to be in the world, but not of the world. And they are coming into the church. They are in the church, actually. And they are then saying, well, because you're free, essentially, and there are, uh, Paul writes on this elsewhere, you then can do whatever you want. And uh, it seems to be more attractive to go ahead and look just like the pagans around us in terms of uh, uh, ritual prostitution, um, in terms of uh, um, carousing and so forth throughout the day rather than uh, holding to one's vocation and clinging to the way of truth. And it's very significant here that he talks about the way of truth. Christ was known as the way, the truth, and the life. He declared himself to be that. So they are those who are um, blaspheming that by bringing in these teachings that are conforming the attempting to conform Christians to the world rather than being that which conforms the world to Christ. Well, and isn't that still the same temptation today, right? People want to look like the culture, act like the culture, even if they don't believe or want to act like the culture. I think we're tempted to do so or compromise our own confessions because, well, it's hard. It's hard to butt up against the culture. It's hard to be the only one in the room that's, that's thinking differently, but Christians are called to do that. And in addition to sort of the sexual stuff, we also bring in money and greed too. Go ahead. That's correct. It's not only the thinking it, but it's actually living it and acting it. Um, comes to mind a conversation I had the other day in terms of teenagers all want to be different, but they want to be different the same way together. <laughs> right, right. And, and in this case, um, within the church, there's this tendency to um, follow the world, bring the world into the church so that the church herself in her worship begins to look like that which one might find in uh, in the ancient times, in the Colosseum, uh, in the theater, um, in our day and age, uh, that which might be seen on uh, popular media, and to bring that into the church, and that again, saying, well, we can, we can use the things of the world, but we'll still remain faithful, and the idea of bringing in these things which are not in line with the truth will eventually draw people away from the truth, especially those who are new Christians or those who are weak in their understanding of Scripture. 
Yeah, I and it always seems to come down to sex and money. I'll just be honest, because that's that's what we see here: sensuality and in their greed. And don't we see a lot of the false prophets today, especially some of the more public ones? Some of them are obscenely wealthy in their false proclamations, and you know we can name all the famous TV preachers and such. But to the point where I've actually heard um, people who are kind of frustrated with this, unbelievers, say, "Well." You know, pastors should have to start paying taxes, which I always love to hear, right? You, you don't pay any taxes, do you, Pastor? <laughs> oh, oh, not at all. Yeah, not, I know yeah, I don't. pay all kinds of taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. They should learn about self-employment tax. We pay more than exactly. most. Exactly. But, but anyway, the point is, though, um, those types of basal instincts, money and sex and that kind of thing, well, it continues to be an issue today. But then what, what he says next, and I do want to get into that because I think there's some hard words here and it's worth spending some time on them. He says in verse 4, and I want to read the next little section here as we approach the break. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the common theme continues to be a little bit about licentiousness and sensuality. Uh, sensuality, interesting translation I should just bring up. Um, sensuality, I think in modern terms, isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially if it's in a proper context. But here it seems to be used pretty broadly just to talk about uh, bad uh, sensual behavior. Correct. Yeah, this has a, a negative con connotation. And of course, the illustrations here, uh, beginning with the angels, the one have sin, were not spared, but they were chained. Uh, they had chains of darkness and they were confined to literally Tartarus, which uh, in Enoch uh, chapter 20, which you're not going to find in your Bible, was, uh, was a synonym for hell. So they were handed over to judgment. Right. Um, yeah. So I agree with, with your theory there. Let's look at some stuff, right? So God didn't spare the angels, cast them into hell, committed them to chains. Now, in this case, these fallen angels we typically call demons, and I don't think this is probably the main thing you want to focus on, but does this tell us a little bit about the location of demons? I mean, I guess there was this understanding that demons sort of populate the earth, uh, and, and, and hell is where Satan will go in the judgment, but it seems here that they've already been cast into hell. Is that something you want to look at? Well, we could go down that route, but that may take another 30 minutes. Well, I think so too. Maybe <laughs> maybe just a sentence or two for people who uh, for whom that stood out. Well, my thought is that they are no longer allowed to go into the heavenly realm. So when Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning and you had the third of the heavenly hosts fall to the earth, they're being handed over into judgment and being continually kept from... Uh, carrying our sins before God in heaven 
as one would see like with Job where Satan was wandering throughout the earth. So they are confined, they are bound, they are chained. And these are spiritual chains because these are non-physical bodied individual uh, beings, okay? Um, and they are being reserved for continual judgment. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of sidebars we probably shouldn't run down or we won't get through the rest of the time. <laughs> no, you're very <laughs> right about that. That's for sure. Well, you know, so he says then... Um, we, he condemns them to extinction. That's Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we, we right, certainly right. often look at that as an example of God's um, judgment against uh, sinful sexual activity, in particular homosexuality, but I think it involves other things too. Um, and then, of course, it mentions Lot in that situation. Anything else in this section, though, you think that would be important for people to know? Well— for those hearing this that are among the faithful that uh, to whom Peter was writing initially, and even to us today, there is a glimmer of hope here in that it mentions Noah. Noah, that's the, one of the glimmers of, of gospel promise there. He was, he w as the eighth, uh, of eight, was spared. Okay, he's a, pre a righteous preacher. Um, and then you have Lot also. Uh, who was was um, worn down by the lawless ones, but he was then uh, rescued by God, okay? Which I find really interesting because the rabbis at the time in the second set, uh, set uh, actually viewed Lot as one who despised God and therefore was himself given over to immorality over against what the scriptures clearly teach as to why he was rescued uh, after Abram's so-called negotiations with God. Yes, he fell into sin after the fall, but then it appears he was restored. So again, you have a couple of glimmers for those who are saying, well, what if I, what if I fall? Well, here's the opportunity to be recovered. And how do I stand fast? Well, I cling to God's word. I cling to his promises, even when the rest of the world is falling around me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it just really is all summed up in nine, right? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He Here's Abraham. Here, I'm sorry, not Abraham. Here's Lot. Uh, right. Here is um, Noah. And so when you see things, when you see the false prophets come in and you're worried, or when you see the world tearing at you, or when God's judgment is being unleashed upon the world, um, for those who are faithful, we aren't to fear, but but just cling to God, as you said, right? Because God knows how to rescue you. And I think th that absolutely is the gospel of this text. That's correct. And uh, in, in that, that's a good place if we have a break coming up. We've got a break on the good news, right? Yeah, well, why don't we do that? We actually do have a break coming up. We're going maybe a minute early, but we will go on that beautiful gospel note. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Morehouse and I will keep on going through Second Peter chapter 2. We'll see you on the other side. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. 
See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Dr. Michael Morehouse. He's the pastor of Catalina Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. Dear saints, thank you for taking the time to be in God's Word with us this morning or wherever and whenever you're listening. Remember, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you want to reach out to my guest, you can do that by emailing me at pastorboo at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook. If you find me on Facebook or send me an email, you can just ask a question or drop a note to say hi if you want. But when you do, let me know where you're listening from and how you connect to the show. Are you using the KFUO radio app on your phone? Are you listening online at kfuo.org, live or on demand? Maybe you download the program as a podcast or you listen over the airwaves in St. Louis. I'd love to hear how you are tuning in. But let's get back to the Bible because that's why you're here. Pastor, before the break, we, you know, we ended on the gospel. It was a very good suggestion from you. Um, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. I want to hand the mic over to you and let you take, take it back over. Well, thank you, Pastor Boo. As we move forward into the text, I think it would be helpful at this point to reinforce, coming off that gospel, how many times the confessions of the Evangelical Lutheran Church from the 16th century use this particular section of uh, Second Peter in terms of reinforcing the doctrine of election. And I think there's a beautiful um, statement within uh, the formula, solid declaration formula. And this particular one is deals with the Holy Spirit dwelling in the elect. He dwells in the elect who come to faith as he dwells in his temple and is not idle in them, but urges them to obey the commandments of God. Believers likewise should not be idle still less oppose the urgings of the Spirit of God, but should exercise themselves in all Christian virtues, in all godliness, modesty, temperance, patience, and brotherly love, and should diligently seek to, quote, confirm their call and election, close quote, so that the more they experience the power and might of the Spirit within themselves, the less they will doubt their election. For the Spirit testifies to the elect that they are children of God. I think that's helpful to keep in mind as we read this text because a a person reading through this may say to themselves, well, have I followed one of these false teachers? Am I following one now? One who's uh, literally, as Peter would describe them, audacious. They're self-pleasers. They're heedless of the harm that they bring to others that they're arrogant, that they have a, a level of hubris that that goes way beyond what Christians are called to have, what we're not called to have any, in fact, and that they're actually right. antinomians um, that consider themselves above God's law. So as we hear these warnings, uh, to those of you who are receiving God's gifts regularly, that you are hearing his word, that you are uh, confessing his word, you are not the ones that are being warned against, uh, warned against. You are the ones who are being warned to stick to that which you have received, the apostolic teaching and preaching of the faith. And in that, you will be preserved over against these false prophets and teachers. But I think that raises the question, and that is, 
How do you know, right? How do people know that you and I aren't false teachers telling them wrong things here over the radio, you know? We have a sense of authority because we're pastors and, hey, this is a radio show, so it must be true. But there are plenty of sources out there where it is flat-out false teaching. How can people be so uh, reassured that the person they're following or the, I should say, the, the, the church that they're a part of or the shows they listen to are true? Well, that would be to stay in the word and to do as the Bereans would do to test that word that you hear. Uh, I've been a pastor here for over 25 years. You've been a pastor for quite a while. Um, one of the things that I believe we should be teaching is for folks to, to ask us questions, to check yes. our doctrine, to hold us accountable. One of the things that I've done over the years with pastors that have been struggling in congregations, I've been a circuit visitor, now I'm a uh, uh regional vice president for our district, and so have opportunity to work with pastors and congregations that are troubled from time to time, is to tell the pastors to go back over their ordination and installation uh, verses and promises with the congregations every five or 10 years with the congregation so that everyone can hear what God has called those men who are in the office of the Holy Ministry to be doing and to hold all of us accountable to God's word. So if we're in the word, the word is truth, then we will be held to where we are on the right path and we'll, be ha we'll have the opportunity to um, raise questions. And another thing is that if, we're, if you and I get asked a question by a, a parishioner, and I don't know about you, but I don't care how they ask it, but if they ask it and we get mad, we're probably on the wrong teaching point. <laughs> Exactly. Well, right. and that, and I think, but see, this is, this I think is a, a moment of reckoning for both pastors and people, right? Because people, this is why your pastor wants you to come to Bible study. This is why he wants you to be in devotion at home. This is why he wants you to just read the Bible every now and then, because it is through God's word that you're equipped to battle false teaching, just as our guest said. But you're absolutely right, brother. Pastors, we pastors also need to be completely open to, well, open to correction, open to questioning. Um, when those happen, and of course it's happened in my, I've been a pastor almost 15 years now, so you know you certainly have uh, quite a bit of experience on me, but even in my time as a pastor, there are plenty of times when I've had to sit down with a parishioner and say, okay, let's put both of us under the authority of the scripture and just see what the Bible says. That's right. And that's not a tactic to show them that I'm right according to the Bible. It's genuine. All right. If I'm wrong, let's find out how, and I'll and I'll I'll correct it. And there have been times where I've stood up and said, you know what? I didn't say this like I should have. This is what I meant. I, I think most people don't wake up in the morning and go, you know, I think I'm going to be a heretic today, or right. I think I'm going <laughs> to proclaim false teaching. Even right. the heretics of old, many of them, the so-called heretics of old, the ones that we've sort of labeled as heretics, I think they 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 were okay until the point where they didn't heed the scriptural warning. Like if they're if they're if they've said something wrong, that's normal and natural, and they're like the they're trying to preserve the the divinity of Christ, or they're trying to preserve God's sovereignty or whatever, and they go a little too far, you become a heretic once you are refusing to accept correction from the scripture. I think that's sort of the line for me. But the, the, the false teachers that Peter's talking about 
are the variety also that just want to come in and and greedily want to separate you from your goods and money, want to uh, bring you out of this uh, out of the kingdom so that they can uh, you know lead you where they want to lead you. So while not every heretic is on purpose, some are. But yeah, so as far as pastors go, we want we really do want you to come to us and say, hey, where the Bible did you get that? Um, and this and, is and, not, yeah, this is something in our um, adult instruction and refreshment classes that I run. I was running them once a year. Now I apparently I'm running them more times a year, as one of my members pointed out, because we have a, a, an influx of people coming in and uh, many new believers that have met haven't been exposed this deeply to the to the study of the text, especially in the Bible studies. And, and it's kind of nice. Uh, you know, I taught we, we don't build a doctrine on one verse. And one of the right. newer believers this Sunday in the Bible study, well, OK, well, where's the parallel? So then we chase the parallels right in front of everybody um, to show them how this is done. And, and it was a good question because it was, OK, yes, this is the doctrine. How is it supported within scripture? It's not based on our tradition, but it's based on the word of God. And frankly, I love it when that's that's done. And it actually kind of wires me. Uh, people often say, well, he's off his meds now. Not that I'm on any, but any, <laughs> it gets me going. And, and I love it right. when people are asking. With the false teachers in this text, though, they don't respect. They are not humbled before the word of God. They, they will, even to the point where they will... Um, uh, offend the heavenly beings that did not fall, who who are beholding the face of God day and night, and who have power greater than they do. Um, they don't seem to be concerned at all about the offense that they would give in the heavenly realms, let alone in the earthly realms. And and with those heavenly beings, there is power there that they uh, who are in the heavenly realms hold close in humbleness to allow God to affect the changes and not to bring um, judgment upon those who are teaching falsely and rejecting even the heavenly realms and the blessings that are there. Mm. Well, and just the, <laughs> right, just the nature, though, of these particular types of false prophets are, are different, as we said, from just people who are accidentally heretical, right? Because I think we right. can all be accidentally right. heretical. Right. So um, let's let's read how Peter describes them, and I think it'll give us a real clear picture. This is going to be the second half of verse 10, 10b through 16. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pro pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, but they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Well, we always love um, 
the donkey talking to Balaam story, uh, but we sometimes forget the why that was happening, right? Because Balaam, uh, his heart was set to be a false prophet, or at least for gain. Uh, yeah. Right. So the way Peter describes him here, that's pretty mean stuff. Uh, you'd get in trouble as a pastor if you describe someone this way. Yes. However, if they are bringing division and false teaching and leading away believers in the church, you and I would be failing in our calling if we did not call them out That's using right. scriptural yep. examples. So the Balaam example, of course, is brought up because he ends up being paid initially to curse Israel. Then he says, well, I have to um, I have to do what the Lord tells me. He ends up blessing them, which makes Balak um, very furious. Well, the rest of the story is a, uh, Paul Harvey, who used to be on the radio, would say is that uh, in the end, Balaam himself was put to death um, because of his false prophecy and his love of money. Um, so this is now this text is not saying that pastors like you, Pastor Boo, shouldn't be paid. What it is saying is that we <laughs> we should not be following over that following and teaching that which will enrich ourselves at the cost of the very faith and souls of our hearers. Yeah, no, I, and you're, I'm your right to bring that up. When I first became a pastor, I got connected with an older pastor who's now retired, and he was into ham radio. It got me introduced to ham radio, and I got my general license and everything now. Um, and also, of course, shortwave listening, which is always fun, even though I think I'm about 20 to 40 years too late for the hobby. It's still fun. But in any case, um, one of the the shows that I would listen to on the um, the shortwave or tune into, I should say, not really listen to, mostly for my own amusement, was this sort of false prophet out there. And he was out there telling people that he was the last prophet that Jesus would come back before he died. And 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 that's sort of normal. There's all kinds of crazy people out there saying crazy things. But this guy ran a multi-million dollar radio ministry based on just receiving money from people who listen to the show. So it's like there are still plenty of people out there who are for sinful gain, proclaiming false doctrine. Um, it happens today. And it's a totally different than a worker being worth his wages, as you pointed out. That's correct. Now, I have a question for you since I'm not a ham radio aficionado. <laughs> yeah. uh, is that guy still alive? He is not. Brother Stare is, uh, has died, and has Jesus died. has not come back. So, so his prophecy prophet. did not come true. Right. And therefore he died. Okay, so that's one of the marks of, of what is a true prophet. So if a man right. says this or a woman says it, as a matter of fact, this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, that is a mark of the false of a false prophet. And in terms of these false prophet pro, uh, pastor teachers here, uh, they're teaching absolutely against the moral law. They are, they are um, sensuous in terms of sensuality of the world. Um, it, there seems to be an indication that they were looking continually for for those with whom they could commit adultery. Um, they are there um, deceiving so that they can increase their own coffers. And the proof, I guess, of their teaching and preaching is that it was put down by the Holy Spirit, uh, that, they, that what they taught is not true. It has not come to fruition that you're allowed to do all these things and still remain in the church. 
Well, and I think it's also a little bit of a challenge to parishioners who say, well, you know, I, it's really just about being baptized and then you get out of, you know, out of hell free card and that's it. But I, I think, and I, frankly, I think the Lutheran emphasis sometimes causes this, but a lot of people then think there's nothing left to do in the faith. There's nothing to grow in. There's nothing to learn. There's nothing to watch out for. And I don't even have to gather because, you know, I've, I've been dunked, so I'm done. I think that's a, a, a sad situation, too. We, we have a responsibility as Christians to grow in our faith and also warn others against these types of false prophets. Well, and within the context here, he's not speaking to people that are outside the church or who have left the church right. who are not going to the divine services. In fact, in this section, it actually indicates, you know, that he's that they're partaking in their feasts. We would uh, oh, yeah. do well to tie that to the love feast of the Christians in the sacrament of the altar that they are, they are, um, they are still in the church. They're gathering as part, acting as part of the body, but they're they're cancerous members, if you will, um, working to draw others into the the death that they are. Their teaching is bringing to people. Uh, it speaks of them as being unstable of soul, uh, of having hearts that are naked in greediness that that they're trained in greed and and as opposed to what i read earlier from the confessions they're actually not blessed children of god but they're cursed children of god within the church now i agree with with your statement about those who say well since i've been baptized i don't have to go to church well the entire corpus of the scripture teaches against the me and jesus the vertical only relationship of of the christian and in this one in particular, we're getting a reinforcement of the horizontal dimension of me and all those who are gathered at Christ's altar, those who are around the table of the Lord, that there are two, two at least two dimensions to the uh, table fellowship that is between the believer and Christ, but the believer and all those who are gathered at the table. And these people are bringing in dissension right at the table. They're teaching yeah. They're teaching against the unity that Christ would have in his body by drawing people back away from the word of God, including the law. So because they're antinomian in, in effect, that they're uh, ones who say the law has been set aside so we don't have to follow it. Uh, they're denying Christ's own words that, that none of that law will pass away. And so they miss the need to have Christ fulfill the law for them because they think it's already fulfilled and they can do what they want. So again, they're leading others astray. And I think in terms of, of, of the degree of sin, all sin is bad, but in terms of the degree of sin, a pastor teacher leads pe who leads people away is guilty of a greater sin, better that he would be cast into the sea with a millstone around his neck than to deceive one of God's little ones. Yes, and you're right, too, to mention that this is really kind of specifically talking about false teachers, sort of those who are donning a, a mantle of authority and then turning around and then denying the authority of Christ. I, I do want to bring in, though, even though I don't know that Peter is explicitly talking about this, but there are individual members who, while not officially like a teacher, bring in false teaching or cause division. Um, there are other epistle writings, of course, to go to that might better teach that. But I, I bring it up just to say this. 
you know, nobody, no pastor, no church leader, no fellow parishioner wants to lose someone in the congregation, right? We always want to have everybody with us. Those who maybe haven't come in a while, we want them to come back. And it, it's always about making sure we don't lose anybody. And, and even Jesus was concerned, right, at this. He talked to the Father in his priestly prayer and said, I didn't lose anybody. And, and, and those things are good. However, and this is sort of controversial, but I know most pastors agree with this, some people are worth losing. Right, Some people who won't heed the word of God, who continue to cause and sow division, those who teach false teaching and lead people astray, if they won't repent, they're worth losing. And and I think those are the kind of teachers that he's talking about. These aren't teachers where, well, let's just keep working with them because we don't want to offend them. No, this is a, you know, these are, what did he say earlier? He said they uh, bold and willful, they don't right. tremble as they blaspheme. I mean, He's pretty outspoken against these people. They're divisive. They're, they're arrogant. And in, in a way, this would be the for the uh, terms of excommunication. Even that is a, a reality that is done to hopefully recover that person at some point. If you follow the old um, right, I would say I commend them unto Satan and all his works and all his ways that he may have his way with them, that they would repent and be returned to the gospel. Of course. Of course. And this also teaches that within the church— over against some heterodox teaching that goes on in some of the church bodies that we talked about earlier, um, there are you can fall away from the faith. And the, I think the Confessions, again, put this quite well as it speaks of God's revealed will for those who are in the church. God's revealed will involves both items. First, that he would receive into grace all who repent and believe in Christ. Second, that he would punish those who deliberately turn away from the Holy Commandment and involve themselves in the, again in the filth of this world, prepare their hearts for Satan, outrage the Holy Spirit, and that he would harden, blind, and forever damn them if they continue therein. Right. So this is speaking of those who are unwilling to be corrected by the word of God, um, that that they can that they have fallen from the faith, and that that's their state is actually worse than those who have never heard the word because they've heard the truth. And they reject the truth. Well, let's hear what else he has to say about them, starting with verse 17 through the end of the chapter, which is 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So that's what you're talking about here. You know, it's worse for them because they should know better. Correct. And Peter uses two parables to sum this up. One, of course, comes from the Proverbs, um, and that's the first one, the dog having returned to its own vomit. The Jews consider the dogs unclean because they were carrion eaters. They would run in packs. They would cause... They would, they would, they lived in a, in an unclean manner, and then of course the hog, after being washed, was swallowing its own filth. That's not in scripture, 
Um, so it was probably a popular saying. So he's using that which those who were perhaps new to the faith would have known outside of the scripture, along with that with which with which is in the scripture. And uh, false teachers had received a cleansing from the sin, and yet now they return to the immorality of pagan life. So they're doing that which, uh, in terms of the the dog and the and the hog. Uh, would do that you could wash a hog and then it'll end up going back into by its nature back into the filth because I mean it's cool to be in the mud and be coated when the sun's hot and so forth um, this this is a section that this stands as a real warning to the hearers uh, to not that not only are these people deceiving others but they are placing themselves under a greater condemnation they have had the truth, they have rejected the truth, and their fate is far worse than that of the pagans that have never heard the truth. What this means is that more is respected, expected from them because they have been given much. Uh, in Luke, it's recorded in chapter 12, more is expected from those who have received gifts than those who haven't. For to whom much is given, much will be expe expected. I was waiting till I got the word there. Well, and this is uh, something that we all should be very cognizant of as we reflect on how we respond to the good gifts and teaching that God has given us. Uh, verse 21, to read that again, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What would you say is the holy commandment? Is is this just referring to all of God's law and will, or is there something specific in mind? I would put this in terms of um, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. What have you picked up on it? Well, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, you know, is is the the, right, the article, is that important here? You know, the holy commandment delivered to them. And I'm thinking, what was delivered to them? And I don't know about a holy commandment, but certainly all of God's law is holy, right? The law of God is good and holy. At the same time, it almost seems like Peter is is sort of couching all of what Jesus has done to save people from their sins, his life, death, and resurrection. He's couching that in terms of a commandment, like this is what God has done for you. The command from God is that you be holy. So so either it's speaking specifically about God's law, which is holy, or maybe just generally that God essentially is commanding us to believe and be baptized and be good people. That's, a, you know, the law right. is there in regardless of, of whether um, you believe it or not. The holy commandment in this within the section of First and Second Peter would be both the gospel and the law, the whole of the Christian faith. I would agree with that. And it is called back right. to not return back to that which one was before God's grace came through the water and word of holy baptism, um, to turn back to the things of the world, that those who are called by God to be of the faith are to avoid these type of teachers so that they are not brought back into the realm of this fallen creation in terms of their thinking and their life actions we would say well we've come we've come to the end of our program brother just have a couple minutes left to maybe share final thoughts with the folks about what they should take away from here before we end uh, i found an interesting quote from epictetus um he he says in terms of summing this whole thing up go and talk to a pig so that he won't wallow anymore in mud well, how's that going for you? 
He <laughs> <laughs> speaks of that, of those who refuse to keep themselves clean. So in terms of God's grace and mercy, and it was poured out for all people that he did die to bring forgiveness of sins to the whole world. And that those who believe that will be saved. Those who are in the faith who then decide to turn back to that which they formerly had, that is no Christ, they will receive in the end that which they desire, no Christ. Like I tell you, I, have, I think I might have to use that pig analogy in a sermon one day. That one's great. So, uh, paid, Yeah, paid God paid. gives us the desires of our heart, and we have to be careful about what we desire. That's correct. And what do you and I desire? That we would be found faithful. We want to hear when we stand before the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to witness God working through the work that we do to call many into the faith and to do that which we are called to keep preaching and teaching so that we might one day preach at the funeral for those who have received their golden crowns before the Lord. It's all about Jesus. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Michael Morehouse. He's the pastor of Catalina Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. Always great to have you on the show, brother. I'm looking forward to having you on again already. All right. Thank you, brothers. An enjoyable time. God bless. Thanks, folks. Tomorrow, what will happen when Jesus comes back, right? How should we live in light of his promise? These are some of the questions that Peter answers in the third and final chapter of his second letter. He warns us about the scoffers who mock the hope of Christ's return. He reminds us of God's power and patience in fulfilling his word. And he also describes the dramatic events that will take place on the day of the Lord when the heavens and the earth will be dissolved by fire and replaced by a new creation where righteousness dwells. That and a lot more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.